In 2010, it was announced that Qatar would be hosting the 2022 FIFA World Cup. Since then, preparations for the event have been surrounded by controversy and tragedy, and a ball is yet to be kicked. Today, we delve deeper into the human rights abuses and corruption surrounding next year's tournament. Welcome to the Meridian Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Hope you're all doing very well. Um, in today's episode, well, as you all know, often in our podcast episodes, we focus on a subject that's been covered in a recent article that's been published on the Meridian Magazine's website. And this week, we're going to be speaking to Jay Gardner about his article called Qatar 22, The True Cost of Hosting the World Cup. Um, Jay, thank you for being with us. How are you? Uh, thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure. I'm very well, thank you. Good, I'm glad. Um, Jay, a question that we ask most of our guests who've written an article is basically, first of all, before we get into the content of it, why you wanted to ask it, what sort of interests you about this this case? Well, you see, nowadays, of course, multiple different sports, not just football, there's a real urge for equality, diversity, and real social change. But at the end of the day, and rather sadly, sport is really, really motivated by money. So, end of the day, uh, sports will often go to countries, they'll play fixtures in countries which have poor records on human rights or uh, social justice within them countries. So, it, I find it quite hypocritical that these sports, not just football, are doing this when at home they're preaching about all of their uh, ethical goals, but then they're going out abroad and uh, playing these fixtures in places which don't uphold them kind of values. So when you say doing this, what, what you're talking about is sort of major human rights abuses and, and a huge yeah. number of deaths, isn't it? So so it, recently, I think it was a Guardian investigation found that 6,500 6, migrant workers have lost their lives um, whilst being involved in the construction of um, the the stadia for the World Cup, which is due to be hosted next year. Is that, is that figure, that announcement and investigation, is that what sort of spurred you on to write the article? Yeah, that news because that was pretty that was pretty shocking news, and I think that really made not just me think about it, but any kind of football fan and most people in general. Because the World Cup is such a major tournament, that it really brought it to light, and people were really starting to see it for what it was, and talking about it, and even criticizing it. But we were we'll, we'll come on to that a bit later in terms of how the footballing world has responded and the political world has responded to. Uh, that report by the Guardian. So, Sophia, you were helping Jay like edit this article, and obviously, you've been editing articles for the Middle East and North Africa section for the Meridian for a while. So, what is the significance of the World Cup coming to Qatar? Do you think for the Middle East for that area? Yeah. So, it's the Qatar twenty twenty two World Cup um, is going to be because all signs are you know pointing toward it going ahead. No, no boycott or anything is going to actually stop it being held. Um, the first World Cup held in the Middle East region and also the first one held in a majority Muslim country. So so pretty significant for sort of the, the region as a whole. And all of these, you know, accusations, uh, migrant worker deaths, the Guardian report have, have really sort of clouded over that sort of significance and, and monumentous occasion for the region, which is unfortunate, but also obviously not something that should be just pushed to the side and ignored to focus on the positives, I guess you would say. 
And Jay, you mentioned in your article as well that historically Qatar's human rights record has not been ideal. Can you elaborate a bit more on that? Like, where did this sort of come from? What was the background that has led to this investigation and covering what it has? Well, uh, concerning especially workers' rights in Qatar, there was no minimum wage until I think it was 2018. Uh, a lot of basic worker safety rights were were completely non-existent until I think last year or a couple of years ago. So it's taken a long time for them to even have that kind of legislation in place. But even now, the legislation is very poorly implemented and enforced. You still see these happen all the time. Like you said before, six and a half thousand migrant workers have, have already lost their life uh, just, just just working on infrastructure for the World Cup alone. So the history of it is very, very clouded. And even now where maybe on paper in law there's these provisions in place to stop these happening it does still happen and even practices such as the uh, death of an autopsy happen so it is very very clouded those kind of wars and uh, the transparency of the whole way they report how the building is going is pretty dark and so jay we're talking about all these horrific thousands of of deaths of these workers is most of that from the toll of physical construction work that they're doing for, for the Games next year? Yeah, so the, the report from The Guardian said that the majority of deaths are due to like heart problems, respiratory problems, due to these people working long, long shifts in the, in the middle of summer in the blistering heat that Qatar gets. And they're working very long shifts without being properly hydrated, so that's where the majority of deaths do come from. But then also you do have, quite sadly as well, uh, a lot of people being electrocuted, falling from heights. So there are various reasons for why we're seeing these kind of figures, but the, the majority of people who do lose their lives is just due to, uh, mostly just due to the heat and the long hours as well with it. Um, this is open to both of you, really. Obviously, the World Cup is a huge thing for Qatar, um, but it's also been shrouded in so much controversy as we've been talking about. So what has the reaction from both the football community and the international community been around this? Okay. Um, so in terms of international response to the human rights abuses and stuff, there has been some issues brought to light by Norway and there was, I believe, a petition advanced to the government there, um, which I don't think has gone through yet, but I'm not sure Jay might be able to tell us a bit more about that. But also when Qatar was announced, and this was uh, more than a decade ago, there in the probably about five years after, there was a lot of investigations into FIFA and into Qatar itself as maybe having bribed other African countries to, or sort of other African Middle Eastern countries to vote for them over France, which was in the in the um, voting system with how they figure out where the World Cup is held. It advances through several stages and it ended up being Qatar and um, the final voting tallies were sort of called into question by, I'm not exactly sure, but I think it was there was um, internal issues within FIFA and many sort of FIFA presidents have been questioned for their integrity and and um, there's current ongoing uh, investigations into whether or not 
the I think Seth Blatter was Joseph Blatter was the um, the president at the time, and he may have taken sort of illegal payments to allow Qatar to advance that far, and also Qatar themselves bribed other countries to uh, acquire their spots. So even beyond just the current issues, there's been you know historic issues with Qatar achieving this this uh, bid for their the World Cup. Yeah, so uh, before this week, there hasn't really been much impetus from the footballing world, especially from the elite clubs and and players, to really have any kind of uh, opinion on on the on the World Cup being in Qatar. And this week, we saw uh, the Norwegian national team they in their fixture, the qualifying fixture for the World Cup next year against Gibraltar. All the players wore a T-shirt uh, expressing their, their views for human rights on the pitch and off the pitch. And then they've other countries have followed suit. So you've seen Germany and the Netherlands have all worn special uh, sort of t-shirts in their in their warm-up to show their solidarity for human rights. But in terms of actually getting the uh, the World Cup boycotted, so to speak, so there's a Norwegian club called uh, Tromso. They were the first sort of club side to uh, really push for a boycott. They wrote to the Norwegian FA asking. Uh, Norway to boycott the, the tournament and then a lot of other Norwegian clubs followed suit but actually getting the uh, the boycott pushed through doesn't seem very likely so this week the uh, the German FA the German Football Association they came out and said that whilst they support the players and the whole sort of like them wearing t-shirts and the uh, anti the human rights messages that the uh, players were, were portraying they don't think that boycotting the tournament is the, is the right way to go do you think that there's been a sort of... This is for both of you, by the way. Do you think that there's a tendency for other countries to, to turn a blind, up, blind eye when it comes to issues in... Like, I just feel like it seems that there's a very big mismatch between what the players and the individual football associations are doing and what the actual governments of the countries... Um, they're not speaking out about these human rights abuses. Do you think that governments of other countries could and should be doing more when it comes to issues like this? Uh the in terms of the football associations, I think for them it's an issue of not becoming involved politically. So, like the German association, they they were saying that we're not gonna go against the the German government. We're not gonna like for us. This is just a purely football issue, and our, our role is to put a German team into the World Cup, look after the players. So for them, it's it's only a footballing concern. But for the governments. Yes, I mean they should be they should easily be doing more, but I'm sure to face back up before just the corruption going into this tournament and the amount of backhands that are going around. So it probably is in some of these other countries' best interest to keep quiet as well. So, and Sophia, I th- I think it's worth reflecting sort of how we got here. You know, we're talking about all these human rights abuses that have happened, but I guess you could say that this never really needed to happen. Do you think that in the future there should be some kind of assessment by FIFA of of the appropriateness of of the countries that are going to be hosting world tournaments and you could say the same about other world tournaments you know the Olympic and Paralympic games because some people I think mostly within Qatar have blamed the the deaths and the abuses sort of cowardly cowardly on the fact that the, the country was so unprepared to hold a mass event like this that they had to you know work day and night to try and build these these facilities um, so do you think that in future there should be more of consideration of actually, well, within the time period 
because it's not like it's a short time period, they've had 12 years to prepare. Within that time period, should there be an assessment of will they really be able to safely and properly get ready for the tournament? Yeah, I think that's that's a, a really important thing to think about. And it's also sort of a nuanced question because on the one hand, you do not want to put, you know, massive amounts of money into building these stadiums and, and you know, other facilities Um like, for example, you brought up the the Olympics. I think the Brazil Olympics were, that was also a massive issue where there was, you, know, you would see these pictures of of them building fancy new stadiums beside, you know, essentially poverty-stricken slums. And so you have that issue where, you know, maybe we should just focus on keeping these tournaments and these Olympic games and stuff like this to countries that are ready prepared to host them. But then the flip side of that issue is all essentially of the countries and regions prepared to host these tournaments are in the Northern Hemisphere, sort of the, the first world, you could say. And so then it's it ends up being sort of Europe, North American centric and sort of Asia we're moving into now with um, the J Japanese Japan. Yeah, Tokyo, Tokyo 2020, which is now being held in 2021, obviously. Um, so I think it's sort of how do you walk the line between trying to not have to pour millions and billions of dollars into creating these new stadiums and facilities versus expanding the the capacities of other countries to actually hold these tournaments which are, are really really important and good sort of i don't want to say propaganda but that's essentially it is and bringing tourism in and bringing a lot of money in um to these countries so yeah, I think ultimately it would be better to not have to build, you know, seven new stadiums or whatever it is for Qatar, but also you you do want to not just completely erase any sort of possibility of countries who are less prepared in the future being able to hold these these tournaments and these events. And how can what what more can these organizations do to ensure that it's not you know, sort of a one-stop tour and they're going to all these different destinations, they're there for a little bit, it's all exciting. And then, as you said, when the party's over, there's not really much left. What what more needs to be done to ensure that it's not just a case of rapidly building all of the stadiums to fit the very strict criteria only for those stadiums to then fall into disuse? I think, sorry, it's about legacy as well. So when you have these, these big sporting tournaments, I think one of the biggest failures of the the Rio Olympics was, as Sophia said, you had these massive stadiums being built next to the favelas. But as soon as the, the party left and the Olympics moved on, these stadiums now, they're, they're in decline or they're just sitting there and the communities around them have felt very little benefit. So if there is a benefit for the community, because something like, like a World Cup can bring massive, massive economic growth through infrastructure projects, through the building of the stadiums, and also it can benefit the, the young people of that country, because they've got these world-class facilities right on their doorstep. So it's all about legacy. And if Qatar, I mean, pushing aside all the human rights abuses which have gone into building the infrastructure and stadium for this World Cup, if there's a legacy beyond this and it can really benefit the communities in Qatar, then there is definitely a silver lining for this World Cup. 
And can I ask, I don't know all that much about um, FIFA as a governing body and the processes. I'm aware that obviously the, the World Cup um, allocation process is a bidding a bidding process, isn't it? Um, is there, do you know, is there any kind of sort of political consideration? Because when I hear that it is, it is Qatar that's hosting next year's World Cup, I just think, well, why Qatar? As you've just said, football isn't a national sport. They were clearly completely unprepared to hold it. Was there, is there a consideration, oh, well, maybe if we hold it in Qatar, in Qatar then that will be of benefit to, to the country for years to come? Because it, it seems like the countries are sort of left out to dry when, when they're chosen to, to host the games. I think FIFA needs to do more. FIFA, as a governing body, they only really seem, or only for now, they only seem concerned about specific tournaments. So they have certain like regulations for the criteria of the stadium. So they need to have certain space for media, certain capacities to fit in certain numbers of fans. But once the final's done, whistle's blown, and they move on, they're focusing on the next tournament, they need to have better plans in for the legacy, especially a country like Qatar, where football isn't a national sport. It's not really well played. It's not big in that country. If FIFA wants to grow football, which I'm sure they do, they need to have better, better plans in place for when they do hold uh, big tournaments in these countries, which maybe don't have that footballing pedigree that other countries have. They need to really have some blueprints in place so that beyond the World Cup for 20, 30 years time, it can really benefit the local communities in those countries. Yeah, and if I can just jump in, like it, we're talking about FIFA right now, but it goes it goes beyond FIFA. It goes down to to sort of the the sub regions, Concacaf, which is the um, North American. Central American and Caribbean one is has been sort of like racked by corruption charges in the last couple of years. And it's sort of one of those things that sort of has to be yanked out by the root, you could say. It's not gonna fix everything by just, you know, having a new president of FIFA and a new system just at FIFA. It's it's throughout the whole, the whole system. And I, I think as Jay said, it's it's not just soccer or football either. It's um <laughs> It's, it's other sports as well and the Olympics and stuff like that. So, I'm sure to the media, that's what the, the message that FIFA want to portray is that the World Cup being in Qatar is only going to benefit Qatar. And then there was talks of it, you know, really trying to uh, reduce political tension in the Middle Eastern region. But I think away from the media, deep down, this, this World Cup is funded on, on money, high bidding, backhanding and corruption. And... Sadly, the people who, who lose out from that are well, obviously football teams, football clubs, and most importantly, football fans. And the sad thing is, is that this probably will continue, that money is such a big influence within sport. And I think it's not going to stop anytime soon. And so, Sophia, you said you're an editor for the Middle East and North Africa section for the Meridian, and you mentioned earlier in the episode that this is the first FIFA World Cup to be held in the Middle East. If we move away from the specific human rights abuses that, that have been uncovered and that Jay wrote about, more widely, what, what do you think the impact is going to be on, on, on the Middle Eastern region? And, and with one for better way of putting it, what do you think is the appropriateness of hosting, of hosting the event there? I, I, the reason I say that is because I, I did a little bit of research and reading for this for this episode, and I came across an interview with um, NASA Al Qaeda, who is the CEO of the the the, the program getting ready for the 2022 Qatar World Cup. Um, let's just listen to that interview now. 
How inclusive is this World Cup going to be? Very inclusive. Everyone is welcome. We are not putting any restrictions on any nationality um, or anybody with, uh, with respect to their gender, race, orientation, religion to, to attend this World Cup. Any fan is of the utmost importance and a priority. Would you recommend that somebody from the LGBT community hides their sexuality when they come here? Qatar is a conservative country, and Qatar is a modest country. Um, a public display of affection is frowned upon in general. So what I would suggest is, is public display of affection is taken into consideration of Qatar being a conservative country. And I'm not saying public display of affection for, for any gender or any um, sexual orientation. I'm talking for everybody. So in the interview, they're, they're talking about the way the way fans should act and the way fans should expect to behave when they come to Qatar. And I guess my question is, do you think there is a, a, mismatch, a mismatch between the Football World Cup being held in Qatar and in itself it being a tournament sort of based on globalisation, a fairly liberal worldview? Um, do you think there is going to be a sort of collision of cultures there next year? Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question. And I think that, that what, um, what was said in the interview is sort of, it, it's unique to Qatar but it's also something that where you know if you go traveling and you're from you're from the west you're from Canada you know the UK type of thing and you go to somewhere like the Middle East you are going to have a bit of culture shock no matter what no matter whether you're attending this high profile event that's sort of expected to attract people from the west um, or not you will be expected to behave slightly differently um, and I think that mess I think obviously there's a bit of division between what, how we can expect to behave as, you know, say as someone from the LGBT community or a woman in somewhere like Canada versus somewhere like Qatar, but having other sort of outward eyes on Qatar in not a negative way and sort of the way that people in the West view sort of the Middle East as a whole to make massive general generalizations is not in a positive light. Um, and being able to, to host one of these large, large events, even with all of the, the corruption charges and migrant worker deaths, I think that most fans are not going to be thinking about that, unfortunately, when they sit down to watch a game on their TV. And it's going to lead instead to them seeing Qatar in a positive light, which is good, which is what, what the Qatari government wants, absolutely. And in a way it's sort of propagandizing a bad thing that they've done in terms of the migrant worker deaths and such, but it's not necessarily all terrible to have people from the West view Middle Eastern countries in not a sort of monolithically negative light. Um just to sort of echo what Sophia said as well, that quite a lot of people, journalists, human rights groups are, are using the term sports watching, not just for Qatar, but for a lot of major sporting events which are happening in uh, countries which are maybe quite discriminatory towards certain certain groups of people. But I think like what Sophia was saying, that the, ultimately the, the regular person, regular football fan isn't going to remember that. If you cast your eyes back a few years ago to the Russian World Cup, we all, we all know Russia is a, is a country with corruption and 
uh, quite a lot of groups there, ethnic minorities are discriminated against, uh, the LGBTQ community is discriminated against. If you ask most people what their memory is of the Rational Cup, they, they won't say any of that kind of stuff. They won't focus on that. They'll focus on who the winner was, how well England did, who scored the most goals. So using sport to hide and mask these issues within the country is, I think it's quite painfully to say, but it's, it's a very good idea because ultimately it brings in so much tourism because obviously people will come to your country to watch the tournament, but post the tournament, that, that stadium where maybe a certain country won the World Cup will become romanticised amongst their fans. So you can easily mask the issues within your country by just having a tournament there, which is... That actually brings me on really nicely to something I did want to ask you, Jay, actually. Um, Because we've talked a lot about, as we're saying, leading up to the Qatar Cup, talking what's going to happen after... But I think it's also important to remember that, as you were saying, like the World Cup is for the regular fan to go and watch football games. And FIFA, you said in your article that FIFA has responded to these mounting pressures, saying that they don't think that a boycott is the right approach. They want to be they want to be involving in engagement and dialogue to promote the understanding of universal human rights values. Do you think that this? Do you do you think that? when the when the average viewer sits down in the stadium that there's going to be any sense of a dialogue do you think it will kind of just sort of be like when the actual tournament's going on all of these issues are kind of lifted and suspended and fifa don't really talk about them or do you think fifa will acknowledge it while the world cup's going how do you think they're going to do that and i hate to be a cynic but do you think that once the world cup's kind of over they might use it as an excuse to be like well on to the next one I think you being a cynic is perfectly justifiable there because FIFA, they're they're a major body. Ultimately, they're a business as well as a governing body and no business is going to want any kind of bad reputation. I mean, it's already had a a history, as we said, of corruption in the early part of the last decade. So they're trying to steer clear from that sort of side now. And as for the regular fan, like I said before, they're not going to remember... the the tragic the tragedies which happened in the build up to the tournament. They only get, normally you only remember who wins the tournament, who the final was, who scored the most goals. Even if you think back to we were saying before with the Brazil uh, the Brazil Olympics, most people like I went down the street and asked people what their memories of the of that Olympics. They're not going to say the stadiums, the lack of benefit for the local community. They can tell me Mo Farah won two gold medals, Usain Bolt won three gold medals. They're not going to tell me. Oh, children surrounding in, in the Rio suburbs are, are still poor whilst there's these massive, uh, beautiful stadiums around their doorsteps. They're not going to remember that. So for FIFA, I don't think there's going to be any kind of acknowledgement. I think the the minute the final whistle goes in the final game, they'll be glad to, to move on. They've got their, their pay packet and for them it will be focusing on how much money we can make out of the 2020 World Cup, which I think in North America. So Jay, can I can I just ask, do you do you think that's a good thing that there won't be a focus on those issues during during the games? Do you think do you think really the solution here is on FIFA to actually change its ways and start allocating these games properly, like funding the the building of the facilities properly, rather than you know? Because are you basically saying it's probably best to put aside those issues for the games so that the games go well, so that that community gets a good reputation, and then. It should be on FIFA to investigate the corruption, the the human rights abuses that have come before that. 
uh, I think FIFA have been very, very laissez-faire towards the this World Cup coming up. The, these problems are not just new. You know, the Guardians report earlier this year was very shocking and it really struck a chord with people. There have been reports on this since way back like 2010 when they won the rights to host the World Cup. And FIFA has never really done anything. I personally don't have any problem with football hosting their biggest tournaments in countries which don't have that, like I said before, that pedigree, that real football history, because ultimately it is the world's game. And if we are going to promote ideas of inclusivity within our within football, then we can't just limit it to, you know, like European countries and South American countries. We need, or football needs to go to countries all over the world to really promote this inclusivity. The problem is, is that, like I said before, these problems have been going on for 10 years now. And it's only really recently that the problems have really come to light in, in the public eye. Also, where FIFA have really, really been criticised on it, not just for the, the backhanding and the corruption leading to the games, but the actual human rights abuses within uh, Qatar that we've seen. And it feels to me that FIFA have just washed their hands off the problem and they've just pinned it on Qatar. So like I said before, the minute that the final's over, FIFA will forget about the Qatar World Cup and it'll be full focus on 2026. I think that's a good place to end it, actually. I think we've gone around all of the different aspects and it's been absolutely great to speak to you both. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast because we've not done a podcast um, about the Middle East, North Africa region yet. And we've also not done a podcast relating to sport. So it's been really, really nice to sort of kill two birds with one stone and delve deeper into two aspects that we've not focused on yet. Yeah, I've, I've absolutely loved it. Thank you both so much for coming on. Because, yeah, as you've said, this is both the region and the, the topic sort of type is really something that we haven't discussed. And it's been super interesting. And I hope our listeners have enjoyed as well. So Sophie Anderson and Jay Gardner, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having us on. I really enjoyed that. Um, that was such a great discussion. I'm one of those people who, when it comes to sport, I love watching the big events. I love the Olympics, World Cups, Euros, all that kind of thing. But I'm 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 not like a keen follower of it in between big events. And I'd seen this story in the news, but to have a proper long discussion about the really serious issues, I, I found it so interesting. I think it is really fascinating because as Jay was saying, when the Olympics comes to town, as it were, as in when the Olympics came to London, it was all so exciting and and things but I don't think I've ever stopped to question what the legacy of the London Olympics was on on London and surrounding areas like you go to London now and you can still see the stadiums and the buildings and things but it was really interesting to talk about the sort of build up to and legacy of each of these events because it's not just about those those matches and everybody just sat in the stadiums it's about the people who work to build those stadiums and who benefit from the economy around those stadiums and yeah it's very interesting yeah well without without wanting to bore anyone if i bring my a-level geography into the, I, just briefly i actually did a project covering like the, the renovation of the stratford area for the london 2012 olympics and like long-term sustainability and having a purpose for the area was at the heart of it so you know, westfield stratford was built because of it and like you know the stadium is now used by i think west ham that's their home home ground now um so yeah maybe maybe in the future uh, fifa will learn from places where it's gone right anyway um we hope you enjoyed today's episode as always if you haven't read jay's article we recommend that you do the the link will be in the show notes and of course if you'd like to write an article for the meridian the link will also be in the show notes yeah thank you guys for listening see you soon bye bye